The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. So the question is, what are these magi from the east? And many scholars believe that um, from the east means uh, Persia, the kind of the remnants of the kingdom of Babylon, who were the ones who took Judah into captivity in the first place. Many believe that they were from from there. The, the question is, what are they doing here? Why are they? Why are these guys the first people outside of Mary and Joseph? Why are they the first people that Matthew mentions at the birth of Jesus? Well, I think the reason why is because their faith is meant to shock the average Jewish reader and surprise them into thinking that maybe, maybe the boundaries of who God's people are are no longer restricted to Jewish ethnicity or for those who strictly obeyed God's law. Maybe God is now for pagans too, even sorcerers like these chaps here. You see, one of the traps that we can fall into as Christians is believing that Jesus only cares about people who are like me, who agree with me, and who are cut from the same moral fabric as me. No, Jesus is for all people regardless of their history, regardless of their background, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of the long list of their own moral failings or anything like that. My hope and prayer for our church is that we will increasingly find ourselves rubbing shoulders with people who we would never have anything to do with outside of the body of Christ. My hope is that we would come to church and be like, There'd be, there's no reason why I, why I would ever have anything to do with that guy over there or why I would ever speak to that woman over there, except that we are being united together by the blood of Christ. We are now brothers and sisters. That's the point of this. And I think the story here is to surprise us into the delightful reality of this. We love a good surprise story, don't we? A number of years ago, there was a guy on Britain's Got Talent. I'm not sure if you remember him or even heard of him. His name is Paul Potts. If you remember Paul Potts, he was a mobile phone salesman from South Wales who sang Nessun Dorma on Britain's Got Talent. He, was this, he is this stout, shy, awkward, totally unremarkable guy. Like if you saw Paul Potts walking down the street, you wouldn't look twice at him. And he took the stage and he declared that he was going to sing opera. And you could see in the reaction of the judges... And you could, you could kind of tell from uh, the, the murmur of the crowd that everyone was under the same belief that we are about to watch a slow-motion train wreck. This is going to be an absolute disaster. Paul Potts smiled his awkward smile with his very crooked teeth, and you could tell from his teary eyes that he didn't want to be there. He was terrified. But then the backing track began, and he opened his mouth, and he began to sing and the most wonderful and glorious voice of this totally unremarkable tenor echoed throughout the theatre, and there was barely a dry eye in the place. And Paul Potts went on to win the competition. We love those stories where our presuppositions are shaken to the core and we are pleasantly surprised by something remarkable. Well, this is one of those stories. This is one of those stories where we are pleasantly surprised about who is here. After this incredible start to Matthew's Gospel, we're meant to read the words Magi and go, huh, why are they here? 
But by the end of it, I hope that we'll see that these magi from the East are the absolute standout example of how we are supposed to respond to Jesus. You see, Christianity is not an introduction to Jesus and then followed by a lifetime of boredom with Jesus in the back of your mind and where you are doing your best to keep yourself saved. Christianity is the ever-growing bonfire of affection towards Jesus that, that makes us more and more delighted to become more and more like Jesus. When you truly come across Jesus, you'll know that what these magi did is the only logical thing to do. Now, we don't exactly know where these guys came from. It says from the east. But when they arrived in Jerusalem, it wasn't long before everybody was talking about it. Verse 2 says that they came saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. These guys would read the night sky looking for signs from the gods. The ancients believed that comets and fallen stars predicted the rise and fall of rulers, which probably explains why Herod was so deeply disturbed about this. And it wasn't just Herod, it was all of Jerusalem too. And this makes me think that it probably wasn't just three guys. You know, tradition says that it was the three kings. Um, considering the fact that the entire city was drawn into this uh, uproar, this drawn into this, uh, this kind of, this, the whole, whole city was disturbed by this, makes me think that it wasn't just a few guys, it was perhaps a, a large group with maybe a huge entourage or something like that. The entire city of Jerusalem was buzzing with agitation. So Herod assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people and he asked them where the Christ would be born. Where is this person? Herod knew enough of the Jewish religion to know that, the, that Israel was waiting for the promised Messiah. They were waiting for this Christ, a, a hero who would come and make everything right again. This is why he was inquiring about where he would be born. He was nervous. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because of what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's a prophecy from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, and it has obvious links to King David, who was born in Bethlehem and was not only a shepherd of sheep as a kid, but he also shepherded God's people, God's people Israel, as their ruler. It then says in verse 7 that Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now if you're familiar with this story, you'll know that Herod is scheming. If he knows the exact time that the star appeared and the exact location within Bethlehem where this family was, he would also be able to identify and take care of this little boy. And when I say take care, I don't mean he's going to go and babysit him. I mean he's going to go and try and kill him. Killing was no problem for King Herod, as we're going to see next week. Once in a fit of rage, King Herod had his own wife strangled. 
On another occasion, he was deceived into thinking that two of his sons had committed a crime against him, and so he had both of those sons executed, even though they were both innocent. On his deathbed, he ordered another one of his sons to be executed. And it's also reported that Herod ordered that uh, certain noblemen, certain um, nobles in Jerusalem should be killed when he died so that all of Jerusalem would be left in a state of mourning around the time of his death. He was awful. He was absolutely awful. It says that after hearing the king, these wise men went on their way. And there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. I don't know the ins and outs of what it means to follow a star, but this made sense to these guys. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. These guys stand out not just as an interesting part of the birth of Jesus, uh, of the birth of Jesus' life, but also as benchmarks for what the right and logical response to seeing the King of the Universe is. You see, throughout this story, we see three things really clearly. Three things presented that are just throughout this story. Firstly, we see. Jesus' right to rule as king. This is why Matthew juxtaposes King Jesus with King Herod so clearly here. Secondly, we also see the warranted worship of Jesus. The wise men wanted to get to Jerusalem. They wanted to follow the star because they wanted to worship this king. And thirdly, it foreshadows the death of Jesus. He would be the shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. And all of those things are there in this story, that he is the king, he is to be worshipped, and he is the king who is going to die. And each of those three things correspond to the three gifts that these wise men give. The gold corresponding to the kingship, the the frankincense to, to worshipping him, and the myrrh to his death. So let's look at these three gifts. The first gift that is given is gold, and gold is the metal of kings. And the symbolism of giving this baby gold is that they are acknowledging this baby, this king's right to rule. They are acknowledging Jesus' right to rule. And what's striking here is that Matthew has already named King Herod in this story. There's already another king of the Jews. And Matthew is deliberately placing these two kings next to each other. He tells us straight up that this took place in the days of King Herod. Like, this is a big deal. This is, really, this is treason what he's kind of writing about here. And when the wise men show up in Jerusalem, their question is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He doubles down on this in verse 4, talking, calling Jesus the Messiah, and then the prophesied ruler in verse 6. This whole section, this whole passage is about who is in charge? Whose right is it to rule? Matthew's point is clear. Jesus is the true king. Herod is just a poser. You see, King Herod wasn't quite Jewish enough. In the eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious sects that were there, he wasn't quite Jewish enough to be really considered a legitimate king. 
He had tried marrying into the right Jewish families. He tried to do a bunch of things, um, but it wasn't enough. But he was familiar enough with the Jewish history to know of the Davidic covenant that God was going to establish the, the rule and the reign of one of David's sons, a son of David, and that son would build a house for God. And so Herod set about doing a massive renovation project of the temple. It cost him a lot, and it took decades in order to, to finish it, and he did this in order to consolidate his power over Jerusalem, to try and convince them, I am this son of David that you've been waiting for. So what we have is a, is a fake son of David next to the real son of David. And the wise men are legitimizing Jesus' right to rule over God's people with this gift of gold. They're saying, no, you're the king. You're the rightful ruler. And in the same way for us, there are false rulers, posers, who seek to establish rule over us. Think of the person who believes that they are nothing unless they have the best career. They have to do everything possible, whatever it takes to get that career. They're being ruled by that desire. They have to make sacrifices. They have to do whatever they can. They're being ruled by that desire. Or the person who thinks that way about being married, whatever it takes to have a spouse, they're being ruled by that desire. If, if it's overtaking you if, you, if you're kind of getting to the point where you're going, I, I must have that and everything else is seconded, secondary to that, then that's no longer a good thing anymore. That's something that is enslaving you. We can say the same thing about body image. If you believe that you're nothing unless you have a particular shaped body, then no longer is that body a healthy thing for you now that you're being ruled by it. We can say that about lifestyle. Certain achievements in life, maybe certain achievements by your kids, maybe it's a high social status or a collection of greater and more expensive possessions, like a bigger house and a faster car, and I'm nothing unless I have the, that, that thing, I have these things. It might be the attainment of more money or whatever it is. We, we believe, uh, if only I have that, then I'll be right, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, and everything will make sense. So I have to have that. I, everything... Everything is on the line for me to get that, and so you're eventually being ruled by that thing. That thing has come to enslave you. What we need is another king, the true king, to redeem us from slavery to sin, to redeem us from slavery to these false kings. You see, a Christian is not just someone for whom God is their, Jesus is their saviour, a Christian is someone who calls Jesus their Lord, their King. Jesus is the one in charge. Jesus is the one calling the shots. Jesus is the one giving directions through his word. A Christian is someone who reads God's word as authoritative, saying, I will hear this. I'm going to listen to this. I'm not going to conform my life around what my king demands and commands of me. And this is good for us because Jesus is a far better king than you and I ever will be. Everything he does is for God's glory and for our good. This first gift tells us that Jesus is king. The second gift that is given is frankincense. Frankincense was incense that was mixed with oil and used in temple worship to both anoint the priests and to uh, anoint the priests for duty as well as uh, mixing it with certain offerings to give it a pleasant aroma. 
Now there is again significance to this gift. If the gold told us that Jesus is to be served as king, the incense tells us that Jesus is to be worshipped as God. And when you look back at this passage again, you see how often worship appears there as a theme. In verse 2, the wise men say that that they have come to worship him. Lying through his teeth, Herod says in verse 8 that he too would like to go and worship him. And then if you read verses 10 and 11, it says that when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What What makes these wise men stand out is that these guys are presented as the true worshippers of God. They are the ones who went and worshipped Jesus. Herod didn't go down. The chief priests and the scribes didn't go down to Bethlehem. The people didn't go down to Bethlehem. I mean, they had all heard that these guys were looking for the Messiah. Nobody was under a rock at this stage. Yet it's just the wise men who go down, just these guys who go down at the announcement of this birth of this Messiah. We can learn a couple of things from these guys about worship. Firstly, worship is costly. And secondly, true worship is brimming with joy. True worship is costly. True worship is brimming with joy. It was costly for these guys to worship Jesus. They traveled a very long way to get there to Jerusalem. We we don't know how far they traveled. if, it, if, it, if the star appeared when Jesus was born, as some people believe, it might have been up to about a two-year journey for them to actually get there. It was a huge journey, huge undertaking. It wasn't just expensive for them in the, in the journey, but also in the gifts that they gave. These gifts weren't just meaningful, they were precious. This isn't just a, a you know, bunch of flowers from the servo on the way to the party. These are treasures. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. They gave freely, but at a great cost too. This is the nature of worship, whether we're talking about singing at church or obedience to God's commands or following God's leading or just overturning our life to Jesus. Worship, which is wholehearted devotion to God, is costly. If you flip forward to Matthew 16, you see Jesus talk about this in verse 24. He says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Worshiping Jesus is about denying yourself and taking up your cross. It's a kind of death, a dying to self. It's, it's hopping out of the spotlight and exalting and glorifying God. It's what John the Baptist did when he said of Jesus He must increase, and I must decrease. The poet T.S. Eliot captures the cost to this Magi. In his poem, Journey of the Magi, he he takes on the persona of one of these men, uh, and he he counts the cost of this journey, and he asks, Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. You see, true worship is costly. 
It's coming to God and overturning your life to him and saying, all of me for all of you. All of me for your glory. But denying yourself for the sake of glorifying God is not a dismal and hopeless dead end. No, denying yourself for the sake of glorifying God is the doorway to joy. Jesus says straight away in that Matthew 16 passage, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. That's an incredible promise. That's a hard promise to trust in. That's a massive gamble on Jesus, right? Like That's what we're doing as Christians. We're going all in on him. We're going, I really hope this is true. The command to deny and to, to lose ourselves for Jesus is followed by this glorious promise that we will find life in Jesus Christ alone. And the longer that I walk with Jesus, the more I learn that the things that I'm called to deny are the deepest treasures of which I am most reluctant to part from. But this is how we're called to respond to him, to open our deepest treasures to him. And this is the doorway to joy. Notice in verse 10 how it says that these wise men were overwhelmed with joy. Now that translation there softens that a bit too much. Four Greek words went into that translation. This is a heavy phrase. It's literally, they rejoiced with a joy that is great and exceeding. They rejoiced with a joy that is great and exceeding. In other words, the starting point for their joy was great. That's where they started. They saw, the, they saw the star where it came to rest, and they, went, they, they started with joy, and then went from there. It was like this bonfire of joy. It just kept getting bigger and bigger. Can you imagine just how excited these guys were with every step they took? Like, every they saw Bethlehem, they can see maybe the, the outline of the, the silhouette of the buildings that are there, and every step they got, they just got a little bit more excited, a little bit more excited. And friends, this is how our worship should be. Our worship should be filled with joy, filled with this glorious wonder and anticipation. Uh, We are so excited to worship Jesus, so excited to glorify God. But what I'm not saying when I say that is that what we need to do is try harder to be happy. I'm not saying paint a smile on your face. Because saying that is kind of like saying to my 12-year-old daughter, have a better attitude. It's an impossible, she will not be able to obey that instruction. She can't do it. I can't just say, have a better attitude. And she goes, okay, sure, Dad. Ah, cool, I'm good. Like We can't just magically make joy enter our hearts. We need to get our eyes on something that will bring us joy. We need to, true worship is responding to the gospel with joy, responding to the realities of Jesus with joy. To experience the joy that we need, is we, we need to go to the gospel of Jesus and find that the gospel of Jesus is the actual reality of our life. And this is what the third and the final gift of myrrh represents. Myrrh was used in those days as an embalming agent for a corpse. And that makes it a really strange gift to give to a baby. However, in the case of Jesus, who came to earth to die, this gift is perfect. You see, the chief priests and the scribes of the other people they were right when, the Messiah, when they said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Because out of Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that word shepherd is incredibly important for us in understanding Jesus' mission on earth. Jesus is the Messiah who would shepherd God's people in the same way that David did. 
as a family, we've been reading through First Samuel lately, and um, we've just re- finished the part where David kills Goliath, and um, there, there's that, that's, that part of the story where Saul, King Saul is doubting David's ability to do this, and he really doesn't want David to do this, but David then points to his credentials, and he said, you know, when I'm out in the field with a sheep, I've killed the lion, I've killed the bear, I've, I've rescued the sheep from the mouth of the lion and the bear. When the Bible says that Jesus is our shepherd, this is no soft title. Jesus is the one who would rescue his sheep, his people, the true Israel, from the mouth of our enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And the way that Jesus would rescue us would be by his own death on the cross, the death of which the myrrh foreshadowed. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is what a good shepherd does for the sheep. It's what the rightful king does for his people. He goes on to say, The hired hand, since he is not a shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. By implication, Jesus does care about the sheep. Jesus does care about you. We had this... Oh, this is wonderful, actually. Um, a few days ago, we, I think it was Wednesday night, we went down to Malulaba, um, down to the playground area that was there, spent some time with my, my family. Um, and my... Uh, son lost, uh, he's got this watch, and so there's a watch strap, and then there's like this Garmin watch thing that sits inside the strap, and it came out. He didn't know because the watch was still on his wrist, and we'd gone and been in the ocean, we had walked down to the beach and walked back to the, to the house, and it was like, he, as soon as he noticed that the, the watch was missing, he burst into tears. He just was so, so upset. Because he got that watch for Christmas last year, it was this really important thing to him. It was one of his most treasured possessions, and he just burst into tears. And we were like, "Okay, we're just gonna that, okay, that's what Christmas this year is gonna be." Um, but then we thought, "No, we'll go and have a look." And as we're walking down the streets of Malulabar, just kind of with our phones out, looking for these, looking for these, um, looking for this tiny little black watch in the night, like in we, it was a few hundred meters away, like half a kilometer away. We finally got down to the playground and it had been hours since he had last checked his watch. And we ran some friends of ours and they were like, hey, what are you doing? And we explained it to them and they found the watch. And I, I should say, on the way down, I was holding his hand. I said, hey, let's just pray, mate. Let's pray. God, would you, would you direct our eyes to where this watch is? Now, I prayed that prayer thinking, it's never going to happen. I hoped it would. But that's my failings as a dad, as a Christian. It's probably not going to happen. God answered the prayer. God cares. God cares how much that watch meant to my son. He cares about... We might come under the very false assumption that God would never care about this little thing. No, he does care. He really cares. He cared about that for an eight-year-old and a silly little watch. He answered that prayer. Praise God. See, see, Jesus is contrasting himself with anything else that we might trust in that will actually throw us under the bus when adversity comes. 
if we're, if we're trusting in a career for our joy, that career will have nothing for us when the day of adversity comes. If, if we're trusting that joy will be ours when we just reach a certain level of lifestyle, that, that, that lifestyle is silent on, on the day that we were told about the cancer. On, on the day where the, the relationship with, with our child is splintered. There are lots of nice things in this world, but they have nothing to say on the day of adversity. They are hired hands who don't care about the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares, who doesn't run away. He says again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Out of God's deep, deep care for us and love for us, Jesus laid down his life for us. He is no hired hand who deserts us at the first sign of trouble. No, Jesus faced the wolf. He faced our death and took it on our behalf. You see, each one of us is actually meant to face the eternal consequences of our sin. It's the only just thing because of our rebellion against God. But Jesus, in his incomparable mercy and love towards us, laid down his life so that anyone who would trust in him, anyone who would believe in him, would not have to face the, the terrible torment of, a, of eternal death, but would have life in him. And to those who believe in him, Jesus gives them his righteousness in exchange for their sin. And we become righteous in God's sight. Pardoned of all of our sin. Forgiven of every act of rebellion against him and made perfect in God's sight. How often do we resist our king? How often do we imagine him to be more of a cold, resenting, scolding king who is tired of us, fed up with us, wishing that he had never saved us? That's not Jesus. That's not our king. That's a, that's a lie from the pit of hell. He is the king who came to die for us, to take the sword on our behalf. Receive it. Believe it as something that is absolutely true of you. Believe that the righteousness that you get from God is the most important thing about you. More important than your height or your eye color or your career or your family. More important than any of those things is the fact that Jesus has forgiven you of your sin and made you righteous in God's sight. Say that in your heart. I'm right in God's sight because of Jesus and because of him alone. Put it deep down into your heart and recite it every hour of every day and you'll begin to experience the same kind of joy. Joy that is great and exceeding. Great, increasing, bulletproof, raging, uncontrollable, fire, joy. Let me finish with a passage from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15 that sums up what we should be believing. Paul says, And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. 
He erased the certificate of debt with all of its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away, as he's taken away our record of debt by nailing it it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Jesus is our good shepherd who faced our greatest enemies, sin and Satan and death. And he took away our sin. Let that be our reality. Let that be the most important thing about us. About us, And let that lead us into great joy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 